So Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Praise be to God. Can. Thank you for reading to us. Um, please keep Matthew 28 open. We're going to uh, look at those verses together in a moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, but let's pray as we come uh, to this passage. Our Father, we've uh, just been singing that we would glorify your name. And that's our desire, that your name is glorified in all the earth. And we pray just to, as we look at this passage uh, this wonderful passage uh, this evening, uh, that that would be the result, that in our own hearts and beyond uh, the walls of this church, that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we called our Easter series Four Days That Changed the World. What were the four days? Well, there were Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Saturday, and Easter Sunday. Monday, Thursday, the night he was betrayed. Good Friday, the day of his crucifixion. Easter Saturday, the day in the tomb. And Easter Sunday, today, the day of resurrection. Four days in history, right at the heart of the Christian faith, without which there is no Christian faith. But here's what we consider tonight as we come to the end of Matthew's accounts. How those four days changed the world, because they certainly have. The evidence of the effect of Christianity is all around us. It shaped cultures, it shaped laws, it's had a lasting impact on societies, on the arts, on music, even sport. Uh, lots of our football teams uh, were started as church teams. And recently several authors have drawn attention to the influence of Christianity as the basis of human rights. There was an article in the uh, New Statesman a couple of years ago by the philosopher John Gray, and he compared the accepted morality of the Roman world with the values that Christianity brought into it. This is what he wrote. Caesar killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. Across the Roman world, wailing infants could be found on the roadside, on rubbish heaps or in drains, left there to perish. Female infants who were rescued would be raised as slaves or sold to brothels. There was the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. He writes, there's nothing at all self-evident about the equal intrinsic worth of all human beings or the inherent preciousness of individual persons. 
These values, which secular thinkers nowadays take for granted, were placed at the heart of the Western world by Christianity. So he's saying the whole way of thinking that we have about the value of persons in the West, especially the weak and the vulnerable, it's been created not by secular thought, as, as many assume, but by Christian teaching. These four days have changed the world. Now let me just make another observation. All the major world religions have a geographical heartland that you could point to on a map. Okay, so uh, 95% of Hindus live in India. 90% of Muslims live in that stretch, that band from North Africa through the Middle East to South Asia. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. So the vast majority of the followers of these religions, they're concentrated into a particular geographical area. And statistically, they've made very little inroads uh, into other places. But where's Christianity's heartland today? Of course, it was, it was in the Middle East when uh, Matthew wrote his gospel. In the days and months after the events of these four days, that's where all the Christians were. But where is it now? Well, the Pew, the Pew Research Center, uh, one of these statistics organizations, uh, says that today only about a quarter of Christians live in Europe, more than a third are in the Americas, North and South America, another quarter are in Sub Saharan Africa, and there's about 15% in Asia and the Pacific, and that number's growing fast in that part of the world. And so they make the statement that Christians are geographically widespread, so far flung, in fact, that no single continent or region can indisputably claim to be the center of global Christianity. In fact, they say that Christianity is the only truly global religion. Christians today are more likely to be speaking Spanish than English. They're more likely to have dark skin than light skin. And if current trends continue, in 10 years' time, the most common nationality for a Christian person will be Chinese. Today, people are becoming Christians in their thousands in places like Iran, where Christianity is banned, where converts are threatened with imprisonment or execution. How do you explain all that? It can't be just birth rates because it's crossing cultures and it's growing through conversion and under persecution. Now, all of that should make us, I think, ask some serious questions. How does the crucifixion of a Jewish peasant in a backwater in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, how does that change the world in this way? How have these four days shaped our world, and how do they continue to shape our world today? Well, Matthew 28, I think, holds the answer to those questions. It's because Christian people have grasped and held on to these three things, which are on the back of the service sheet for you. They've grasped and they've held on to these three things. The authority of the crucified and risen Jesus, the command of the crucified and risen Jesus, and the promise of the crucified 
and risen Jesus. So let's take the first of those. First of all, verse 16 to 18 of Matthew 28, the authority of the crucified and risen Jesus. Now let me just set the scene for us. And we've been doing this over the last few days from chapter 26 through to chapter 28. We've seen Jesus be crucified for the sins of his people. He was buried. And then he's risen to new life. And he's been seen at this point in verse 16, he's been seen by just two people, by two women called Mary. And Jesus has told these two women to tell the disciples that he'll meet them in Galilee. Now, as well as all that, one of the things we've noticed as we've gone through verses, uh, chapters 26 and 27 and, and into 28 is that all the way through, there's this resistance to the news of Jesus' resurrection and acceptance. There's these two things playing off one against the other. Some people resist him and others accept him. And so as we get to the end of the gospel, there's this big question for the reader. What will you do? Will you accept that Jesus was crucified for your sins and rose to new life, or will you reject him? And that's all going on. That question is all there as we come into verses 16 to 20, with this great commission that Jesus gives to his disciples. The implication is, if you accept that he died and rose again, well, then you'll obey what he says here. Let's look at it together, verse 16 and 17. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So there's the eleven, the twelve minus Judas. They head to Galilee, just as Jesus has told them to. And there they see him and they worship him. They worship. He's risen. He's the Lord, this means. He's God with us. He's the Messiah. And now he's defeated death, and so he's worthy to be worshipped. But some doubt. Now, it's important for us to realise that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Doubt is often our experience as believers, isn't it? This is, if you like, believing doubt. It's not surprising that that some of them are just really overwhelmed by what they see. A man risen from the dead, it's amazing, it's really overwhelming. They're just not sure what to make of it. It's that kind of doubt. But it's strange of Matthew to mention it. Don't you think that? Like, why would you say this? Why would you mention it? Especially given that he's one of the 11. You know, I'd probably want to keep that quiet. But that he mentions their doubts, I think, tells us two things. One, that they really had them. It's just true. It's just honest about their experience. But two, it tells us this. The fact that what Jesus says here changes the world is not ultimately because of the disciples. It's not because of the strength of their faith. It's not because they're some kind of super-Christians who have amazing abilities. Now we see that they're just like us. 
The power for the change that will come is not found in the faith of the disciples themselves, but in the one in whom that faith is placed, in the crucified and risen Jesus. Now what Jesus is about to tell them to do is is so far beyond their power and ability to do it, and ours, so he begins by telling them of his authority. That's in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, this is just an astonishing claim, isn't it? How much authority does Jesus have? All authority. What's the scope of this authority? It's all authority in heaven and on earth, given to him by his Father after his death and resurrection. He has authority over evil powers, over Satan and his demons. He has authority over governments and kings and emperors, over Biden, over Xi or Johnson, or Putin. He has authority over religious leaders, over Buddha, or Muhammad, or popes, or archbishops, or gurus. He has authority over big business, and over big pharma, and big oil, and big tech. And he has authority over this land, from its borders to its far islands, in the countryside and in the city, and authority over you and over me and over all people. All authority. This is the claim that Jesus, as the God-man, as the Messiah, as the only one who has conquered death, he has been given authority over all things. Everything and everyone should bow to him, should worship him. Now, if that's true, then we should expect his influence to spread from this mountain in Galilee to the ends of the earth. I mean, it's, in some ways, it's a ridiculous claim to make, isn't it? And, it? and it would be easily proved to be false when he's forgotten about, except that it's exactly what we see across the centuries and across the world. People from all the nations of the earth are still bowing the knee to King Jesus. Now with that authority established, he now spells out the implications uh, in his command, the command of the crucified and risen Jesus. This is verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now there are four doing words in this command. It's often called the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. That's the main one, make disciples. And then there are kind of three accompanying doing words. Go, baptize, teach. So if Jesus has all authority, if he's the true king of all heaven and earth, well then the implication is that the world must know about him and they must bow the knee to him 
two. And the disciples of Jesus are those who are to make this happen. Let's just take these instructions one at a time and look at them. First, the main one, make disciples of all nations. Now this claim of Jesus' authority, it's not just over Israel, but all nations. Now just for a minute, just put yourself in, in the sandals of the eleven. Um, up to now, have they really understood this? You know, that Jesus is laying claim to the whole earth. You know, they knew that he wanted disciples from his own nation, from Israel, but, but that he want disciples from every nation, from every people on the face of the earth? My guess is that this was pretty staggering uh, news to them. Notice too that the command is to make disciples. And this implies that, that new disciples are not disciples already. It implies that disciples are made. There must be conversion from one way of life to another. There must be new birth by the Spirit as they hear and respond to the gospel. But not mere conversion, as if it's just a momentary change in belief. They're to become disciples, lifelong disciples, who follow Jesus from every nation on the earth. So this is the command of the crucified, now risen Jesus, make disciples of all nations. But how can it happen from just these 11 guys? Well, only if they go. Now, Robert Moffat was one of the Scottish missionaries to Southern Africa uh, in the early 18th century. And once when he was at home on furlough, he was telling stories about his time over there. And in the audience one day was a young Scot who you probably have heard of. His name was David Livingstone. And he was at the time studying to be a doctor, but he decided uh, to give his life to the service of God, but he wasn't sure where or how. And as he listened to Moffat's story, he heard the missionary say of this experience in Africa, there's a vast plain uh, to the north where I have sometimes seen in the morning sun, the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been. And Livingston never forgot those words, the smoke of a thousand villages with no gospel. And afterwards he went to Moffat and asked, would I do for Africa? So that moment was his great decision to go it was one which, under the grace of God, would ultimately lead to vast numbers of Africans becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. And wonderfully today, many coming from Africa to the spiritually dark reaches of the European continent. To the crucified and risen Jesus, he commanded the eleven in Galilee that they would go from there and bring his gospel to the nations. And they did. They went to the Middle East. They went to uh, Europe. They even went to, to parts of Africa and to India. But by the end of the first century, they're all dead. And so again, you might expect that, that Christianity at that point, well, that's just going to die, isn't it? It's going to die with them. But it doesn't. Because other Christians, other disciples, took the command to go seriously. And this is why, of course, we're meeting today here in Edinburgh in Scotland. 
And it's still how the world will be changed. When we go anywhere, anywhere to where there are people who have either, either not heard about Jesus or who have not bowed to Jesus, whether that's the workplace or the end of the world, Christianity is not, is not static and it has never been static, not since the beginning. It is a going faith. So make disciples, go, and next, baptizing. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now what we've got here is really one of the clearest statements of the Trinity in the Bible. And it comes from Jesus' own lips. So if you ever want to talk to someone about the Trinity, just say, well, let's go to Matthew 28 and we can see Jesus say it there. Christianity is a Trinitarian faith. There is one name, the name, that's singular, one name, God, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, just place ourselves in the world when Jesus says this. He says it in the context of the monotheism of Judaism and the polytheism of Roman Empire. So the Trinity is the teaching that makes the God of the Bible unique among the religions of the world. This is the God we proclaim. He's not like the one God of the Quran. He's not like the many gods of the Hindu pantheon. He's not a spiritual force like there is in Buddhism. He is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But why baptism in the name of the Trinity? Why baptise them into this name? Because baptism for someone who's lived their life in the ways of their culture is the outward sign of their conversion, of their inner transformation. So in the days of, in the, days of the Old Testament, Jews went through a ritual cleansing after their repentance. And in a similar way, if you were to convert to Judaism... Uh, you would, to show that you'd been converted to the Jewish faith, you would go through this kind of cleansing, this washing. It was a sign that you, you'd been washed clean from your sin and that you belonged now in the people of God. And it was public, it was done before others. And of course, in the early part of the Gospel of Matthew, John the Baptist takes this to new levels as he prepares people for Jesus. So with this teaching here, that you're to be baptised into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus is making this sign uniquely Christian. You see right from the beginning what this baptism means for these new disciples. If you're Jewish, being baptised into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, well, that's a big point of change. It marks you out as a Christian now, still a Jew ethnically, but now trusting in Jesus as God's Messiah and having received the Spirit. And if you're a Gentile, uh, well, while you remained ethnically and culturally one of your people, baptism told everyone that you had rejected the polytheism of your people and now worship the Trinitarian God of the Bible. It marks you out as distinctively Christian. So for Jew and Gentile, though they, though they maintain their cultural heritage, they're also now part of a new people, a Christian people, a baptised people from all different nations, 
but now united through faith in the Trinitarian God, united from across the world and united throughout history with those who have made that same step. Now, you can imagine, therefore, that as people are baptised, it's costly for them, and it still is uh, today. For an adult who's lived their life with a different allegiance, it's the point at which they publicly acknowledge this new identity. And it's often the point of, uh, when you get baptised, the point that leads to rejection and persecution. And that's true here in the UK, but obviously it's more dangerous in other parts of the world. So why do people still do it? Well, because they're being obedient to Jesus' command. He has their allegiance. They believe that he has the authority to make this command and they need to obey. So make disciples, go, baptise, and now teach, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, some of you are not old enough to remember this, I'm sure, but for those who are pushing 40 or a bit more, um, you can think back to 1997. D-Ream at the top of the charts with Things Can Only Get Better, and Tony Blair setting out his three priorities for office in the New Labour Manifesto for the 1997 election. Now, does anyone remember that? No. <laughs> okay. Three, three priorities, you might remember this, what were they? Education, education, education. Labour campaign to put classrooms at the top of the political agenda. And it was a winning strategy. It tapped into something. People knew that that was important. It was important for change, teaching. See, Jesus does not want mere converts. He wants disciples. He wants people who will remain faithful to him to the end. And that requires teaching. The making of disciples is, in one sense, it's a one-off event as people repent and place their faith in Jesus. But it mustn't merely be a one-off event. It must be a continuing thing. So disciples need to be taught. And teaching, of course, is part of Jesus' manifesto, way before Tony gets there, of course. But notice here that it's not mere education that disciples need. It's not mere education, but transformation. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. So we do need to be educated. We need to know the things that Jesus taught, the things that Jesus commands. But it's obedience to his commands that Jesus requires. A disciple is not someone who knows a lot about Jesus or a lot about the Bible. It's someone who has been changed a lot, who's living out Jesus' commandments. And in Matthew, there's been lots of commandments. Think Sermon on the Mount, all that stuff about not allowing lust or anger in your heart and and speaking the truth, and, and keeping your word, and, and forgiving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. Or think about the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, said Jesus. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
See, having been baptised into their new family, disciples reject their old sinful way of life and live obedience to Jesus' commands. Now this, of course, is pretty radical change. And the church of the early centuries really started to stand out among the culture. So the quote I mentioned at the beginning, unlike the culture of the day, the Christians were intensely pro-life in every sense of the word. They condemned the common practices of abortion and infant exposure. But not just that, they took in the, child, the children that had been abandoned and rescued them and cared for their needs. They cared about the poor and they met their needs in generous acts of charity. They looked after the sick and the weak and the dying when no one else would. And they could do that, of course, because they did not fear death anymore because they believed in resurrection. But they were also a counterculture in terms of sexuality. They treated women as equally valuable to God as men, which was just not the case in the wider culture. They restricted sexual activity in general to marriage between a man and a woman, and they believed that it was a lifelong covenant. They treated slaves with respect as whole persons and not as the playthings of their masters. They gave prostitutes dignity within the church community, and they restored them from the abuse of their former lives. And then, of course, the church was countercultural in being multi-ethnic and multi-class. It is not a stretch to say that there was no community on earth where people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of races, all kinds of class, slave and free, embraced each other as brothers and sisters. Nothing like it. Now, was the church perfect? No, still isn't. But this radical way of living had a huge effect on society, and it still does right up to the modern day. Everywhere the gospel has taken hold, the world has been changed. And it does so because the disciples are taught to obey the commands of the crucified and risen Jesus. Love God, love your neighbour, has changed the world. Now finally, as we reach the end of the book of Matthew, we need to hear the final word from Jesus. What will it be? It's a promise. Second part of verse 20. This is what Jesus leaves his disciples with. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. We said before that the the change that's been brought upon the world cannot possibly have happened because of the faith of the disciples themselves. Disciples of Jesus are weak and fearful and doubting and wholly inadequate for the task that Jesus calls them to cannot possibly make disciples of all nations. I mean, have you seen us? No, we're not likely to change anything, are we? But where Christ commands, 
he also equips. And his final word is a word of promise. He says, I am with you. That is, by his Spirit, he walks with us as we do what he has commanded, as we make disciples of all nations, as we go and baptize and teach. And he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. He will never, ever leave us. To the end of the world and into eternity, he promises his presence with us. So it's not the church that changes the world. It's the crucified and risen Jesus who changes the world through his church as his presence dwells with us. So we began by asking, well, how have the four days of Easter changed the world? And here's what we've seen. That the crucified and risen Jesus has been given authority over heaven and earth, all authority. It all belongs to him. He has a claim over everything and everyone. We've heard the command of the crucified and risen Jesus, that we, his disciples, must go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to obey him. And we've heard the promise that he is with us. Now he's with us, and he will always be with us to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you that where you command, you also equip we thank you, Lord God, that you have given us this commission. You have called us and commanded us to go and to make disciples from every nation of the earth. We believe that that is what you've called us to do. We want to be obedient to you. And yet, Lord God, we feel so weak. We feel that we can't do it. We know that we can't do it. And so, Lord God, we do thank you too that you promised to go with us and to help us. Oh God, we need that help. We know that we cannot do it, but we thank you that you do it through and with your church. Lord God, we thank you too that this promise is not just for now, but for always, that you will always be with your people as they serve you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me close uh, by reading... The, the commands of Jesus again. Uh, we'd love you to stay afterwards and have tea and coffee um, at the back there and stay around and chat. But uh, let's have uh, close with the words of Jesus just ringing uh, in our ears. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Amen.